I'm Father Rich Paquin. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Bible, and we've been especially focusing on the ways that uh, we can pray through the Scripture. In particular, we're looking at the passion of Christ, His suffering and passion, and we'll get to His death and resurrection and deal with aspects of it that apply to ourselves in these times. Today, we will look at the sin of despair that was committed by Judas after his betrayal and the painfully sad despair of some of the sex scandal victims and their perpetrators. Um, this is one of the other really sad and tragic elements of the sex abuse scandal. And we want always to see the experience of the, we've had with our own betrayal, uh, sometimes by clergy um, in our culture, and understand it in light of the experience of Christ. Now, of course, if you have any questions or comments, especially related to today's topic, we invite you to be part of the show. You can call in during the live show, which is Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And the number to call if you are in North America is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can still call, but not at that number. It won't work. Instead, use country code one Area code 205-271-2980. 205-271-2980. You can also send email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. Or you can also follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. So again, we're going through my book, Wheat and Tares. Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. And you can still get that at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTN.RC.com, EWTNRC.com. And there it is item 81098. If you already have the book and are following with us, we are starting today's discussion on page 118. Okay? So... This is where we see that Judas Iscariot was already disgusted with himself. He was already disgusted with the 30 pieces of silver. And he went back to the temple treasury. As a matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem, you can see the impression on the side of the eastern wall of the Temple Mount of where the stairway up to the treasury used to be. You still see, and where the door was, but it's all blocked in now with stone, but uh, smoothed out stone, but you can see exactly where it was over on the uh, eastern corner. And he took that over to the temple and throwing 
down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. It's in Matthew 27, verse 5. Now, only the Gospel of Matthew mentions Judas' suicide. Um, St. Luke reports of Judas's death in Acts 1 with a few different details. I uh, see that in Acts 1, verses 18 to 20, also a very short report. It says, Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, Akedama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it. And, and it also says, his office let another take. So that then he goes on to explain that one of the other apostles, or a disciple had to take Judas's place. There needed to be 12 apostles because Christ is founding a new Israel. And just as the old Israel had the 12 founders of the 12 tribes, here we see the 12 apostles founding the church. So that's the, the, the details there. And, you know, with the, the, the difference of details, I'm, remember St. Luke had spent some time in Jerusalem. He knew people who were there. And while St. Matthew gives a very summary statement, the, um, you know, this is something that, sometimes happens when a person, as a matter of fact, that typically happens, uh, when a person is hung, that they often lose control of their, uh, their insides and they, they you know, you know, release the inner fluids and defecate on themselves. I think something like that is what he's talking about. Um, but that's not un unusual with people who hang. But this is something that is very important to reflect on. First, um, Judas had regret for having betrayed Jesus, but he didn't have true repentance. Big difference. A lot of people regret what they've done wrong, especially if they get caught. They're not sorry they did it. They just are sorry they got caught. And this is something that by committing suicide, you see that Judas is indicating regret over what he did. It was a mistake but not repentance. We presume that he did not believe he could be healed and forgiven by Christ. This is where despair gives in. You give up hope that you can be forgiven. And he turned that thought that he couldn't be forgiven into a self-fulfilling prophecy by killing himself. He then 
makes it impossible to uh, you know, tell God he's sorry. Now, we can only assume that he also had a problem with faith, that he didn't, just like the others did, that the other apostles also had a problem of faith in the resurrection. They didn't think that Jesus really would be raised from the dead. And when we get to the chapter on Christ's resurrection, we'll discuss that more in detail. But he had so little faith in Christ's words that Christ had prophesied he would die and rise again on the third day. He prophesied that. And Judas didn't have faith in Jesus' words. Judas, who had seen a lot of miracles, he had eaten the bread and the fish that Jesus had multiplied on two different occasions. He had seen you know, uh, Lazarus raised from the dead. He had seen the widow of uh, Naim have her son raised from the dead. And many other healings and exorcisms. He, it did not bring him to faith in Jesus. And furthermore, he lost hope. This is a very important thing. When we take a look at the letter to the Romans, we, we see that faith is how we're justified. But it also says in chapter 8 of Romans that you know, we are saved by hope. And Judas had neither faith nor hope. And he then didn't move towards love, which is what St. Paul goes on to describe in chapters 12 and following as also necessary. St. Paul always taught that faith, hope, and love are necessary. And he gave up hope that he could be forgiven and loved. So... He, in a self-fulfilling prophecy, made self-annihilation his future. And this is something that is very strongly in contrast with St. Peter. Now, St. Peter denied Jesus three times. He said that he would never deny Jesus. He would die with him, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And after the third denial... St. Luke also brings out how Jesus looked intently at him. It's a specific word in Greek to look intently at somebody. And Jesus looked right at him. And Peter had not mere regret. Oh, man, I messed up. No, he repented. He went out and wept bitterly. There's a tradition that he wept so bitterly that there were furrows in his cheeks. But that's a way to express, we don't know that from Scripture. We just know that he wept bitterly and tried to give us a picture of how deeply this was felt by him. And this is something that Peter did also leave the scene of the denial but he went apart in order to weep and, and express sorrow. And it was tears of repentance. This is a key 
element for us. Judas went away and hung himself. And that is the major contrast. Now, horribly, horribly, this relates to the experience of a number of people who were involved in the sexual scandal the, the, inside the Catholic Church with the clergy. Some of the victims have, you know, experienced despair and, and committed suicide. You know, they, they, the betrayal that they had was so profound that they, some of them have committed suicide. They just couldn't cope with that. And there have been also some of the perpetrators of those crimes who also committed suicide. A few of the priests have done that as well. You know, for a variety of reasons. Um, a lot of times the victims blame themselves. You know, what did I do wrong? Was, did I initiate this? Was I starting it? And they, they second guess themselves and just give up. And, and of course, they're oftentimes very embarrassed in a lot of other things. Uh, sometimes they uh, felt that, well, they were tricked into this, they were groomed into this. Uh, these are the kind of things that have gone on, and they just don't know how they can ever recover uh, their, themselves from that. And you know, some of the some of the priests who committed suicide just couldn't deal with you know the public shame. They you know, which is understandable. Uh, sometimes they uh, can't deal with the fear of you know criminal uh, condemnation, you know, uh, you know, criminal procedures and being punished by the state. And it all, you know, it's, it's rough time for them in, in prison. Um, oftentimes the prison inmates are more harsh on child sex abusers and other child physical abusers because they them, the majority of them had been abused when they were children. And, that's, and so there's a fear of the inmates and going to prison as some guys just, again, commit suicide as an act of despair. And, you know, it's, it's somewhat, it's of course shocking because these are also priests who had heard confessions and I would hope that they had been merciful to their penitence in confession but may not have been able to see that they might ever find mercy. It's hard to say. But this is something where all of us, whenever we are dealing with sin, especially when sin becomes very public, um, this happens a lot these days, by the way. You know, there's um, a, a lot of people, you know, all over our society who shame other people for their sins. Um, they, they use their bad behavior against them. We see this in our politics all the time. You know, it, uh, and it, it's oftentimes used by political enemies to undercut their political stances and things like that. And people in the media, you have to be very, very cautious about spreading even true statements you know, about other people um, because the, the goal isn't, I gotcha. 
and I can therefore control you. That's oftentimes what goes on. But it's rather that how do we help people find reconciliation? How do they find forgiveness? How do they find hope for restoring their loves? In fact, when uh, I was at that women's prison in, you know, outside of Austin, Texas, uh, for Christmas, you know, they, they have a ministry of restorative justice in that diocese of Austin, Texas. Because the goal is not to force former offenders or ex-offenders to wallow in their sin, but rather how do they come to Jesus Christ and find reconciliation and healing. And this is a very important element for all of us. We won't find that with our own personal resources. It really takes the grace of God. And this is where we in the church need to be those folks who are willing to be ministers of that grace of God. How how well aware am I of the ways that God has forgiven me? How aware am I of the reconciliation I have already experienced from God? And the more aware of that I am, the easier it is to seek ways to let other people know that God can reconcile them too. Again, pay attention, including in the political realm. You know, usually it's portrayed as something in the religious realm where people are self-righteous and they won't forgive. They just hold on to it and they're very self-righteous. Take a look at people on the right and on the left of the political spectrum. If you want to see self-righteous indignation at how dare my opponent have done this terrible sin, whereas our attitude should be, if I know about somebody's sin, I want to help them to repent and come to know the grace of Christ. And that's true not only in the secular political realm, but also in our families, in our parishes, and people, the sinners that we get to know, our goal is not to gloat over them of how bad they are, but rather aware of how much Christ has forgiven us. We want them to experience the infinite mercy of Jesus Christ as well. That's our goal. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back and continue with uh, talking about Judas and the after effects. So please stay with us. Welcome back. 
want to go over a little detail in the, the gospel that um, is worth just a quick comment on. Namely, when Judas threw the money into the temple treasury, the chief priests could not accept it. They couldn't do it. It says in Matthew 27, verse 6, but the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since they are blood money. So that's um, something that we see there. Um, this could be a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 18, where it says, you shall not bring the hire of a harlot nor the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Um, dogs were unclean animals in, in Judaism. So that's why the wages of a dog, you know, like hiring out your dog as a watchdog for somebody's sheep would be the kind of thing. And if someone is a prostitute uh, and makes money at it, you can't bring that into the temple. We're not sure that that's the law they're referring to, but it seems to be, even though it's a slightly different situation, but they know that this is not the right kind of money that, that they can put back in the temple because it's polluted. It's, it's gotten wrongly. That's the point. Um, they gave Judas this money to betray an innocent man. And they, they can't take it back because it's based on unrighteousness. And just to note that this supports what Jesus had said just a few days before this, when he spoke his seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees, that he gave a critique that fits this in Matthew 23, verse 23 to 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. When, remember we mentioned this a few weeks ago that when Judas brought the money back and said, I've betrayed an innocent man, that was a call for a retrial. He admitted perjury. He admitted it. So the money was blood money and was not allowed in the temple. And they should have said, stop this procedure. We are not going to prosecute him. He's an innocent man. The main witness is the one who just said that he didn't do anything wrong. Um, uh, and they don't. So they worry about ritual pollution in the temple instead of the bigger issue of injustice, of condemning an innocent man. And people who uh, testify in court, again, we see this uh, go on a lot of times. Sometimes they lie in court, they commit perjury 
to prevent themselves from being indicted. Other times they lie in order to indict somebody, you know, which is uh, just as serious a grave sin. You know, that's a sin against the, first, uh, the Eighth Commandment. So that's something that we have to deal with. Well, I just wanted to make a little mention of that. And um, we have to take a look at this point about the seriousness. You know, these are, we're talking about serious crimes here that Judas had committed. And it's worth it for us to take a look at how uh, serious a crime had been committed by those who did do the, the, the almost 11,000 or so clergy who were engaged in the sexual abuse uh, against the young. First of all, they sinned against the Sixth Commandment and the Ninth Commandment of God. You know, the, it's a subcategory of the sin against uh, prohibiting uh, adultery and also against lust, you know, coveting your neighbor's wife. Um, these are illicit sexual acts outside of marriage. Uh, if you've seen that uh, document, you know, um, that, that came from the Vatican recently, they, they said it very clearly again and again that marriage can only be, be between a man and a woman who are committed to each other for life, are faithful to each other and are there open to having children. That's what makes marriage. Nothing else is marriage. And any sexual activity outside of that is sinful. It doesn't matter if it's with men, women, whatever. Um, th those acts are uh, sinful. And they did that. They broke their freely chosen vows of chastity, if they were religious, or their, their uh, promises of celibacy. Um, and that's serious enough sin just as if they were married people having an affair. The sin is serious. Secondly, we also saw that there were clergy and including bishops and other priests who covered up a lot of these things. Um, these are crimes. And by covering them up, they were participating in a certain form of false witness. You know, that's, that's a a uh, serious thing as well. In about a hundred, at least a hundred cases, maybe more, some of the perpetrators were moved to other countries. Sometimes they were just moved around their own diocese to other parishes and such. And they repeated, the, the, the perpetrators sometimes repeated the, the, the same crimes. Uh, you don't just, uh, we, as we see going on so often in our culture today, you let criminals get away with bad behavior, they do it again. We see this with the people breaking into stores, breaking into homes, beating people up on the street, shooting people on the street. They don't, uh, the, the, these, I think, completely irresponsible you know, district attorneys who don't prosecute crimes, uh, they have a certain type of sympathy, I'm sure, but you have to prevent the criminals from doing the crimes. And that, that happened in the case of the clergy. So this is a very serious issue. And then 
Thirdly, we also see that uh, sometimes the uh, clergy had abused adults, sometimes even including seminarians, young, young men looking to become priests, um, and, and other people. Um, you know, that's, even though it's not a child, it's still a serious crime, and then these things got covered up too. That's not the way we have to deal with it. We have to address crimes as such and you know, try to correct people. Again, it's not a matter of getting back at anybody, but it's the goal of trying to prevent crime. That's our task. And finally, I would just mention how the chief priests had taken counsel together about what to do with the 30 pieces of silver. So it says in Matthew 27, verse 7 and 8, they took counsel and bought with the silver pieces the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And um, in fact, it is called Akeldama to this day. There is a Greek uh, Orthodox monastery that's built right there near where uh, Judas hung himself. Um, and um, this is um, still has that name. And it's uh, meant to be a fulfillment of prophecy. So we see in Matthew 27, verse 9 to 10, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, something we should keep in mind. Um, even though the text that we're using here from Matthew has the name Jeremiah. It was actually the prophet Zechariah, chapter 11, verses 12 to 13. Uh, in Zechariah 11, it says, Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 shekels of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Cast it into the treasury, the lordly price at which I was paid off by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and cast them into the treasury of the house of the Lord. So that is a very specific prophecy of what would happen. And it's in Zechariah. Uh, we don't know why that discrepancy exists. Um, we, a number of textual scholars suspect that um, when Matthew wrote it, no prophet was, name was given. He usually doesn't mention the name of the prophet sometimes, but usually more often not. And we see also in two 12th century Syriac manuscripts and in a Persic manuscript, uh, a couple of Itala uh, manuscripts and an old Latin manuscript that uh, it's omitted. So this is one of the things there. And it could be that Jeremiah Jeremiah was mentioned because Jeremiah does have uh, a passage in Jeremiah 19, verse 1, uh, go buy a 
potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people. Uh, some of the senior priests go to the valley of the San Chinom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. Men shall bury in Tophet because there will be no place to bury. In fact, that is where the, uh, at these, these places here, the valley of Ben Hinnom, uh, Gehenna, uh, that's where the, the, the field of blood is. And um, also in Jeremiah 32, it says, by my field, which is at Anatot. Um, uh, though that's not the right place. Anatot is to the north, and the Akeldama is there. And, you know, this is something that, you know, uh, we can take a look and see how perhaps there's a certain element where we take uh, a look at how this money that was is a symbol of the money that's been used to pay uh, punitive damages. Now, the victims of the abuse deserved uh, a lot of help for the psychological care and otherwise. Um, you know, but it's a it's kind of a sad thing because, you know, a lot of times the money that was given to the church was used for this and not the money of the perpetrators of the crime. And this is a cause of great harm because we expect the money that we donate to go for the ministry of the church. We don't plan it to go to pay off indemnities due to the crimes committed by clergy, and that's oftentimes a source of great pain. So that's a slight uh, way to, to see some of this as well. All right, we're going to stop there. Next, next week, we will start with the way that the trials switch away from the religious leaders to the political leaders. We'll take a new, new stage of Christ's trials. Um, and what I'd like to do at this point is go to some of your questions. We have somebody, first of all, from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I'm uh, from outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Good to have you. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Father. What can we do for you? So, Father, based on your first uh, segment, I have a question. After Judas uh, committed suicide, um, can you help me understand if he is, was condemned to hell? Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess just to appreciate maybe how that judgment happened and where, since he kind of seemed to have changed his mind about his actions, yeah. the betrayal. Yeah, he, a couple things. Um, first of all, the church does not teach that he's in hell. In fact, the church never states with any kind of certainty that somebody is in hell. Uh, we will say that certain people are saints. We'll canonize them, but we won't state that somebody is in hell because we don't know if at a final moment they repented. That's the thing now. The, on the other hand, we have to take a look at the situation. We see that instead of repenting, as I mentioned, he went and committed suicide. That is 
a serious sin. That is a grave sin to commit suicide. And there are people who, of course, have all kinds of mental illness and may not understand what they're doing. Uh, and again, we don't, I'm not here to judge any of those individuals. But I am here to say that you did not give yourself your life and you don't have the right to take it away. It is not your life. It belongs to God. And so you have no right to commit suicide. That's why we consider uh, the euthanasia movement that has been legalized in, well, I think, about 18, 20 states, um, that this is still a grave sin, that we don't, we don't do that. Um, and you can't undo it. That's one of the problems. You, just like murder, you can't, once you kill somebody, you can't undo it. But when you kill yourself, uh, we call it suicide, which is self-murder. That's what suicide means, self-murder. And there are a lot of people who promote this as, you know, a, a good thing. I think of them as agents of Satan for this reason. They are, you know, pushing death. And we can never forget our Lord's words in John chapter 8, that Satan is a liar and the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. And to use murder and death as a tool for what you consider to be good is a satanic decision. That's an evil decision. Now again, we know that there are some people who, whose minds and ability to reason is gravely impaired by drugs, alcohol, and by you know, psychological distress. And I leave it to God to judge their souls. I can't. But I can say that the act itself is gravely uh, and objectively evil. And Judas committed a gravely evil act. Now, did he repent right before he lost consciousness? I don't know. And the church completely leaves that up to God to do the judgment. It is our task to state these are wrong deeds and we pray for God's mercy for the people who engage in them. Does that help? Right, but yeah, we don't know if Judas is in hell. We don't know Hitler's in hell, Stalin, Mao Zedong. Did they do gravely evil things? You bet. But we leave that up to God to judge. The church will judge about the saints as being in heaven. The rest leave up to God. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes and deal with some more of your questions and emails and comments, so please stay with us.
Welcome back. Now, first of all, I want to invite you to enjoy, join me tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will be speaking with Deacon Omar Gutierrez about the work of the Evangelium Institute and the importance of dynamic faith formation so that we can be good evangelists, okay? So it'll be a good, good thing for us to look at. Um, let's go now to some of your emails. Uh, first, we're going to start off with Stan in New Jersey. Father, I often fall into despair for my past sins and mistakes. I have confessed everything, and I know I am forgiven. How can you look forward with hope and not despair over the past? Thank you for your time. Stan in New Jersey. A couple things to keep in mind. The uh, Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Take a look at John chapter 16. He convicts us of sin to help us know in our conscience that we have done what is wrong against God and against our fellow human beings. And it's very important to have that conviction of sin so that we avoid the sin. But there is a pseudo form of that that also comes from the devil. Another very important role of Satan is described in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, I believe it's verse 10, where he is called, right after St. Michael and his angels cast Satan down, they said, now is the accuser of our brethren condemned. Now he is cast down. Notice how he is called the accuser of our brethren who accuses them day and night. This is a very important thing that Satan will be the one who is that voice of accusation. And sometimes I'll hear people say, well, I'm getting over my Catholic guilt, my Jewish guilt, my Baptist guilt. It's your own guilt, first of all. You know, <laughs> own up to where you get your guilt from. But the evil one will keep accusing you. When you hear that accusatory voice that would have you condemned, recognize what St. Michael said, that it's the voice of the evil spirit that he defeated. And that's when he says it. At the defeat of the evil one, he recognizes that he is the accuser. And by the way, just as another little point, Satan, Shatan in Hebrew means accuser. The word in Greek, diabolos, from which we get our word devil, diablo in Spanish, diabolos means prosecuting attorney. 
while the Holy Spirit is called our paraclete, and paraclete is the Greek word for counselor for the defense. You're, the Holy Spirit is your defense lawyer in that sense of counselor. It's not a psychological counselor. It's a legal counselor. And he is your defense counselor. That's what parakletos means in Greek. While diabolos means prosecutor. So the question that you have to deal with, Stan, is do you believe the voice inside that comes from the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin, but in order to defend you? Or do you believe the voice of the prosecutor, the evil spirit, who would condemn you and lead you to despair? If it's a voice that leads to despair, that's a, the best way you can detect is from the evil one. If it leads you to hope, that is the indication that it's the voice of the Holy Spirit working inside of you. Okay, So that would be a good little rule of thumb. Now I have a caller. We have Joyce from the great state of Illinois, land of Lincoln. Joyce, what can we do for you? Hello, Father. God bless you. And Jen Dobre. I'm wondering for many years, do you think Judas Iscariot might have found Jesus when the soldiers were taking him back and forth and, and apologized to Jesus for what he had done? He certainly did not have a chance to apologize to Jesus directly. He did not go back to the house of Caiaphas where Jesus had been put on trial and was being held until morning. Nor did he go to the court of Pontius Pilate. He, instead, he went to a place that is a, a bit of a distance away. It would take about, from, from Caiaphas' house to the temple treasury, it could take about a 20-minute walk, a 15, 20-minute walk, depending on because it's not an easy way to get it. It's, it's very steep to go from that part of the city to the temple uh, treasury. But, you know, he didn't go there. He goes the wrong place. So he doesn't take that effort to say to Jesus, I'm sorry. Now, before he died, did he do that? We don't know. We can't, so we, it's not worth it for us to speculate. All that we can do is recognize that this was something that he did wrong by committing suicide. It's forbidden by the uh, fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, including kill yourself. And, um, you know, he, and besides lying and bearing false witness and betraying Jesus and lying to Jesus' face. Remember, he lied to him and said, certainly it's not I, Lord. Remember at the Last Supper? Uh, so he's not building up a pattern of virtuous speech. That's the reality. So this is something we have to be very cautious of. All right, we have another related to Judas um, from Suzanne. We have an email. Hi, Father Mitch. 
I thought that Judas betrayed Jesus because Judas wanted a violent rebellion and that was not what Jesus was preaching. I don't think he betrayed him just for money. Will you please clarify, Suzanne? Well, Suzanne, um, there's no passage in the Bible by the people that knew Jesus and Judas that gives any reason to think that he wanted a violent revolution. If anybody would have done that, it might have been the apostle Simon, the zealot. He belonged to a party that was violently revolutionary. And this, uh, so, so uh, he might, but there's no evidence that Judas won a violent revolution. And remember what St. John said. He had been stealing all along. He is a good example of love of money, not money itself, but the love of money being the root of all evil. Okay, So uh, St. Paul wrote about that in his letters to, uh, to Timothy. So, um, no, there's no evidence for that. Okay, We have another caller, Joyce, calling from the great state of California. What is going on in the Golden State? Joy? I don't, she's not there. Okay, well, we'll go back to some of the emails. Um, let, me, let me take a question here from Nick from Canada. Uh, good to have folks from the Dominion writing in. Father, I am curious to know why does the church end Christmas season at the adult baptism of Jesus and not when he was a child, like when Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple? Is this a Roman rite reason or universal thinking? Actually, it's universal. And, you see, and it's not only Catholic, also the Greek Orthodox and the other Orthodox communities that they uh, celebrate the baptism of Jesus at the end, uh, uh, at, well, for the Eastern churches, it's not the end of the Christmas season, it's the beginning of Epiphany season. So, uh, we, uh, for instance, we celebrate at the Maronite Parish uh, on Epiphany, we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. Uh, there's a really cool, and, and blessing of holy water is a ritual that is done in the, uh, Byzantine tradition as well as the uh, Syriac tradition. I don't know about the other churches, but I suspect it's there too. So that we do a uh, blessing of water. The Maronite rice is a really cool blessing because we take hot coals from the censer and put them into the water uh, when we bless it. Uh, in the name of the Father, we put a coal in, the Son, the coal, and the Holy Spirit, a coal, to show that the Holy Spirit is putting His fire into the water. That's why it's, it's effective. So, you know, this is because we are transitioning from the childhood of Christ, which is, you know, a time that, uh, relatively short, to get us ready to start reflecting on the public ministry of Jesus. And that's why we do it at that, in that way. We start on the public ministry. And then we also have an email from uh, uh, John. 
Uh, hello, Father Mitch. In Mark 13, verse 14, what does our Lord mean by a statement when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, not to read or understand? What does this have to do with Christ's second coming? How can we prepare for it? John, uh, this is a reference to the Emperor Caligula who sent a statue of himself to be set up in the temple in Jerusalem so that he would be worshipped. He wanted himself to be worshipped. And this is putting not only a statue, which is forbidden in Judaism to have any statues, but a statue to remind the people to worship a mere human being. He might be the emperor of Rome, and he might have a lot of power and armies, but it was something wrong. I think that was in 38 AD. So it happened just a few years after, and it shows that the Antichrist is someone who wants to be worshipped, even though he's merely a human being. Same temptation that Satan had given to Adam and Eve to be like God. That's, as to paraphrase the old Negro spiritual, give me that old time temptation. It was good enough for Adam, it's good enough for me. All right, but we have to go over another temptation. We've run out of time. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and direct you in all of your ways by his peace. Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, we ask you, as always, to remind you, we depend on you. Uh, to, this network is brought to you by you. So please keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you, and God bless. Mm -hmm.